speak at a conference that dealt with the subject of the eternal security of the believer. As I studied in preparation for that conference, I got rather excited about the subject and got back into some study and consideration of the basic principles of the doctrine of salvation by grace. In fact, I decided to devote our weeknight Bible studies to a consideration of that subject. We've been going through the various points of grace, basically taking as our outline what has been called the tulip, Calvin's tulip, though I reemphasize, as I have in the past, that this does not originate with John Calvin. John Calvin simply discovered it. It originated in the Holy Scripture. But it's a nice format for helping one to remember what these various points of this doctrine are. T standing for total depravity, U standing for unconditional election, L standing for limited atonement, I standing for irresistible grace, meaning that when God gets ready to save a sinner, he cannot resist this power of God exerted upon him in the salvation experience, and the fifth being the preservation of the saints. And that's the one I want to talk about today, the preservation of the saints. But before I get into that, I just want to slip something by you in passing that I noticed in the song we sang, number 314, as it was describing the salvation experience. We sang the line, Almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of his grace. Observe that the song describes the salvation experience as our being arrested by the almighty love of God. Now, of course, we do not build our faith upon the testimony of a hymn. However, that hymn is an expression of the testimony of Scripture of exactly what God does when He saves a sinner. The salvation experience is not a simple, I offer to you and you accept. Salvation is rather like a police officer coming and arresting you. And how many criminals are willingly arrested? Think about that for a moment. They are generally arrested against their will, but arrested nonetheless. And when they are arrested, you may read the newspaper article and they might say that so-and-so was apprehended by the police. Now, while the word arrest uh, is not used in this connection in Scripture, the word apprehend most certainly is, and they mean the same thing. The Apostle Paul said in uh, Philippians chapter 3, he said, "...not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus." The Apostle Paul was arrested by Jesus Christ. Salvation is an arrest. It is an apprehension of a soul by a power greater than itself that it cannot resist. This is the clear teaching of Holy Scripture. But then we want to come to that last point, the P in the tulip, representing the preservation of the saints. That being that everybody that God elected and everybody that Christ died for and everybody that is apprehended by the irresistible grace of God in the salvation experience cannot fall from that or lose that. That work cannot and will not be nullified, disannulled, or revoked. 
but shall be carried on to its completion and perfection. That the doctrine of preservation is taught cannot be denied. Turn to, first of all, to Psalm chapter 37, and let us look at the plain statements of the Word of God. If somebody says, I do not believe in the preservation of the saints, then he might as well say that I do not believe in the clear testimony of the Word of God because the book says it. The reason we believe in the preservation of the saints is the book says it. And we either deny what the Bible says or else we believe it. In Psalm 37 and verse 28, For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They, they who? Obviously, the saints. They are preserved forever. There it is in the black and white print. The statement of Holy Scripture, of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, and it says they are preserved forever. But the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and see it's clearly stated again. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved. There it is again. Blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But don't overlook the next verse. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Do what? Verse 23 says, God preserve you unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 24 plainly states, God will do it. It doesn't say he may do it. It doesn't say he would like to do it. It doesn't say he simply wants to do it. It says he will do it. And notice that the preservation, according to this passage, is hinged not upon the faithfulness of those who are preserved, but upon the faithfulness of the God who preserves them. You see, many people will say, I believe in the preservation of the saints, but I believe that God preserves only those who remain faithful. That is lost. As well that are here. Part, God will preserve you against loss. You do your part and God does His. That's not what our verse here is teaching. This verse hinges the preservation of our eternal salvation upon God's faithfulness and not upon our own. Faithful is He that calleth you who will also do it. This passage explains very clearly the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, speaking of the elect who are begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to God's abundant mercy and not according to their good works, we read in verse 5 that they are kept, who are kept by the power of God. We are not kept by our own power, by the exertion of our own efforts or our own energies. We are kept with the power of God through, that is, by means of faith. Now, in this particular verse, it does not say, it does not specify whether the faith under consideration is our faith or the faith of God. And both have faith. Does God have faith? Most certainly, He does. 
For the very word faithful, which is ascribed to God Almighty time and again in Scripture, simply means primarily full of faith. So if God is faithful, then by definition God is full of faith. We read, shall our faith, shall our unbelief make the faith of God of none effect? Here are two things, our unbelief in contrast to the faith of God. And Paul said, God forbid. If God in His faith has committed Himself to do something, your unbelieving can never undo that. It cannot make the faith of God of none effect. Now this verse says that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The phase of salvation here is the final phase of the salvation experience when even your decaying, dying, corruptible body shall be saved from the grave and the corruption of the grave unto a body of immortality and incorruption. The creature itself shall be delivered or saved from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And until that moment, you are kept with the power of God by means of faith, through faith, and that is the faith of God. And if you'll go back to 1 Thessalonians 5, that's what it said. Faithful is He who hath called you, who will also do it. So here we have the plain statement of Scripture regarding the preservation of the saints through the faithfulness of God. And this aspect of God's faithfulness being the means of our preservation will come out again in further considerations. And then we come over to the book of Jude, chapter 1, there being only one chapter. But I've had to learn to think of it that way because if I put Jude 1 on my computer, it won't pull it up. I've got to put Jude 1, 1. So I have to learn to think of one-chapter books still in terms of chapters in order to make them work on the word process, or on the word program. <clears throat> in Jude 1, 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father. There's God's election of His people before the foundation of the world when He set them apart, chose them out of the world, set them apart to make them holy and without blame before Him in love, according to Ephesians 1, 4. Sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. We want you to notice that the preservation is in Christ, not in yourself, and that God does it, according to 1 Thessalonians 5. These are the plain statements of Scripture regarding the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. It cannot be denied. To preserve, let us get the definition of the term, means to keep safe from harm or injury or to keep in safety, to save. So that when we talk about the preservation of the saints, by definition we are talking about their salvation. If they are not preserved, they are not saved. To deny preservation is to deny salvation. For preservation by definition means to save, to take care of, to guard, to keep. We are kept by the power of God. We are kept and guarded. The word that is translated preserve in our passage in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 is the Greek word tereo. I don't know if the role are in Greek or not, but you usually do something funny with the R's in other languages besides English. You either roll it or you gutturalize it, but you don't just... You either... Or... So, anyway, I'll take a chance that somewhere in there it's probably rolled, terreo. It means to guard from loss or injury. 
properly by keeping the eye upon. By definition, the word preserve means to guard from loss. So that when we talk about the preservation of the saints and their being preserved forever, we are saying that they are so guarded by the power of God in Christ that there is no danger of their being lost. If they may be lost, then they are not being guarded secure as the passage says and as the definitions say. That we are guarded from loss which is by definition preservation, is plainly stated in the words of Jesus Christ. Listen to him. Here is the doctrine of the preservation of all of those God gave to Jesus Christ to save. Oh, so much is stated in these words. If people would just focus on this plain statement, and before they try to think about anything else, just get what is being said here by Jesus Christ. He said, he said in John 6, 38 and 39, 4, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Christ was sent to do the will of God. I just want to ask any fair thinking person a simple question, the answer of which should be most obvious. Did Jesus Christ do the will of God? I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And this is... Oh, he's going to define the will He was sent to do. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing. That's the definition of preservation. To guard from loss that I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. Notice how the words of Christ state essentially the same as Peter stated. Kept by the power of God, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. Kept to the last day. Jesus said that that's the will of God that I was sent to do, that I should lose nothing of all that the Father hath given me, but raise it up again at the last day. Kept, preserved, guarded from loss until the last day. How plain that statement is. I, how much plainer could it be stated? And I submit to you based upon the clear statement of Jesus Christ, that if so much as one soul that was given to him to save is lost, he will not have done the will of God. And that is preposterous to imagine, especially in the light of the clear statement of Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah chapter uh, 42 and verse 4, He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. Of course, again, the doctrine is plainly stated in the words of our Lord in John chapter 10. I just want to briefly review the statement and then I want to spend the balance of the message. And this is what I've been doing in the Bible studies. I give the statement of the doctrine and then I deal with the objections. We dealt with the objections to election last Wednesday night. And I want to deal with the objections that are raised against this doctrine, why people don't believe it or don't want to believe it. 
the problems that they profess to have with it. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Oh, how very plainly that states for whom Jesus died. Then we come to verse 26 and we learn not everybody's a sheep. And therefore Jesus didn't die for just everybody without exception. He said, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And if you can have it today and lose it tomorrow, it is not eternal. The very definition of what God gives to us in salvation screams the doctrine of preservation. It is eternal life. And if you had it today and you lost it tomorrow, it wasn't eternal. It was temporary and conditional and probational. Jesus did not come to give the sheep probational life. He came to give them eternal life. And He said this, in John 5, 24, He that heareth my word and believeth, on him that sent me, that's talking about something you do right now. Half everlasting life. He didn't say he that heareth and believeth will get it. He said he that hears and believes has got it. That's why you hear and believe. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Notice the life that a believer has right now is an everlasting life in no danger of loss. He shall not come into condemnation. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And notice connecting thought. He's going to elaborate on what it means to have eternal life. And they shall never perish. Now, the word perish by definition means the loss of life. Sometimes it refers to eternal perishing, the second death, the loss of any eternal life. Of course, if you never had it, that's certainly a loss. It can refer to eternal loss of life as the second death in the lake of fire. Sometimes it refers simply to the loss of physical life. When men die physically, they are said to have perished. Perished, by definition, is simply in its primary meaning the loss of life. It may be eternal life. It may be the life of fellowship. It may simply be the death of the body. But any way you slice it, it's the loss of life. Again, we're not talking about difference in definition. We're talking about difference in application. And in the particular context in which the word is used here, the subject is not physical life. The subject is not simply the life of fellowship. The subject is eternal life. And connected with that, they shall never perish. There is no danger of their ever dying eternally. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. They are secure in the hand of Christ. And when we think of the hand of Christ, when we think of the hand of God, we are talking about that which expresses and sets before us the power of God. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Oh, how clearly the doctrine of the eternal security of the saved is stated in the words of Christ in John 6 and verse 37 when He said, He that cometh unto Me, I will in no wise. That is, under no circumstances cast out. I heard a minister one time preach a message entitled Half Hinges. And the reason he titled it that is because he was dealing with the texts where people will quote one half of it and build a doctrine on it and not quote the whole. 
How many preachers quote those words, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out, and turn that into an invitation to those who are dead in trespasses and sin to walk the aisle, and if you walk the aisle, God will not cast you out or turn you down. But they don't read the first half of the verse. The first half of the verse says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I shall in no wise cast out. Then he explains why he won't cast them out. For he was sent to do the will of God, which was that he, that he lose none of them. No wonder the preservation is said to be in Christ Jesus. For Jesus Christ takes personal responsibility to see to it that all that God gave to him will be saved without the loss of one under any circumstances whatsoever. No wonder then Christ is called a surety. He takes the full responsibility for the salvation of all those that God gave to him. We are not talking simply about a tenet of our theology. We are not talking about something Calvin dreamed up. It should be evident at this point that we are talking about the plain statements of the Word of God and of Jesus Christ Himself. And of course, that eternal preservation is so cannot be denied from the words of Paul in Romans 8 when he said in verse 29, For whom He did foreknow, and God did foreknow every one of His elect. He knew them and purposed to save them and entered into special and particular relationship with them before even the worlds began, according to Ephesians 1. For Whereas those who are not elect, he says of them, I never knew you. Now, he certainly had cognizance of them as individuals and of everything they did because God knows everything. But in terms of special relationship and salvation, he never knew them. See, the wicked are never known. The elect are foreknown. Isn't that sweet? And for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them, them, not some, not most, but them, same group, without the addition or subtraction of a soul, he also called, and whom he called, them he also glorified, and whom he just, uh, them he also justified, pardon, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. You see, what starts in predestination ends up in glorification without the loss of one. That, my friends, is preservation to the last time. When the Lord returns in all his saints, are invested bodily with His eternal and radiating glory. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is, Christ, it is God that justifieth. They are so justified from all iniquity that if you're going to condemn them, you've got to have something to charge them with and there is no charge that can be laid for Christ died to purify them from all iniquity. According to Titus 2.14, He saved us from all of our sins. There is no sin left to be laid to our charge against us. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Notice that when he registers his objection against the possibility of our condemnation, he does not point to our faith, to our faithfulness, to our works. He points to what Christ did. We are preserved in Christ. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. 
As it is written, for thy sake we're killed all day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul said in verse 38, For I am persuaded and would to God more were persuaded of this, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No creature can separate you from God's love, that sovereign love that arrested you. And when it says, neither any other creature, inasmuch as you're a creature, you're included, pal. The devil, you nor any man, can cut you off from the sovereign love of God. So, there's the statement of the doctrine. And we could go on and on. We could multiply more verses. We could say more that where we have these plain statements of Scripture regarding the eternal preservation of God's children. But then the first objection arises, and this is essentially the objection to every aspect of the doctrine of grace, be it election or be it uh, irresistible grace or, or uh, limited atonement or whatever, whatever department of the system it might be. This is the objection that is always registered, is if it's that way, if God does it all, and it's all hinged on God, and it's not any of it hinged or dependent or conditional upon the sinner, then why should we try to live a Christian life? Why should we preach the gospel? Why should we repent of sin? That this is a licentious doctrine, licentious doctrine, that if this is true, then you can just live like you want to, live like the devil. It doesn't make any difference. You're going to be saved anyway, so why bother with it all? That is the objection that's always raised against this. Well, the problem with that is a misunderstanding of the doctrine. First of all, it cannot be denied. God's children can and do backslide. They don't always hold out faithful. Sometimes they start out good. Sometimes they do, and then they slip back into their old ways of life. That can happen and does happen. Let us get the plain statement of this fact in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It happened at the Corinthian church, as we noted two Sundays ago in our sermon on the sin unto death. These were saved people to whom Paul wrote. He called them saints. And yet they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And Paul said because of this, some of them were sleeping. That is, they were dead. And some of them were weak and sickly because of this abuse of the Lord's Supper. But it is very interesting that these very people that Paul charges with these sins, he addressed in chapter 1 as saints. Huh? He didn't say to the church of God, which is at Corinth, and to those who used to be saints and need to become saints again. They were still God's people. But yet they had backslidden. He said, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Here are the children of Israel. They started out well. They got baptized. They were singing God's praise. But they backslid. And it says they did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. These people were partakers of Christ. It says it. It says they drank of the spiritual rock, and that rock was Jesus Christ. But with any, many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. 
Now all these things happened unto them for our ensamples. Here Paul is writing to saved people and saying most people in the wilderness are ensamples to you and I. They were children of God just like we are, but they backslid. And that's a warning to you. It can happen to you. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. You start tampering around with things that are contrary to the will of God and bordering on compromising your position as a Christian, your witness as a Christian, and compromising the Word of God and the will of God, and somebody comes to try to rebuke you or warn you, and you respond, I'm in control, you've got nothing to worry about. When they say that to me, I start worrying, friends. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. You better watch out. You can't play around on the borders of compromise and sin and expect to, to hold your ground as far as your testimony. Now, these people fell. These people fell into sin. They backslid. They fell out of fellowship with God and came under His chastening and in judgment. God's children can backslide. But people will say that, well, if this doctrine of eternal preservation is true, then you can do what you want to, sin all you want to, and it won't make any difference. That's where they're wrong. Granted, if you are a child of God, it will not touch your eternal salvation. But, oh, if you are a child of God, it will make a difference in terms of how you get along for the rest of your days in this earth. These people didn't get away with what they did. That's the lesson. Those that fornicated fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Those who tempted Christ were destroyed of serpents. Those who murmured were destroyed of the destroyer. They met with sore judgments and chastisements for their backslidings, and so will you if you are a child of God. This is not a licentious doctrine. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and note most carefully how God deals with His erring children. He does not. He does not disinherit them from heaven. He does not revoke their new birth, snatch the eternal life out of their souls, throw them back into their former state of death and trespasses and sins. That He does not do. They are kept and guarded from that. There is no danger of that. But this that I'm about to read, he does do. In Hebrews 12 and verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. You will be chastened when you backslide. But when God chastens, you notice, if he endure chastening... God dealeth with you as people who used to be sons that He's trying to make sons again. It said God dealeth with you as with sons. You're still a son of God. That relationship cannot be revoked. But if ye be without chastisement... For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement... Now, here's where you can see this isn't a licentious doctrine. If you go out there and live like the devil and get by with it and never suffer for it, listen to the testimony of the next verse. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You're not a child of God. If you can live like the devil in this world and not suffer for it, you're not a child of God. Now, is that a licentious doctrine? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 states very plainly how God chastens His children for their disobedience. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 
For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, talking of the Lord's Supper, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. God dealing with you by means of chastening when you sin is God setting a difference between you and the rest of the world. He doesn't deal with them like that in this life. He deals with them at the final judgment when He pitches them into the lake of fire. But oh, the clearest statement is Psalm 89. This is not a licentious doctrine. What I mean by licentiousness, giving you a license to go live like the devil without consequence. You most certainly will meet with consequence, temporal chastening, but not eternal condemnation. That consequence you are secured against. Now, somebody might say, oh, well, wow. <laughs> if we're about going to hell, yeah, I'll be chastened. I'll, I'll suffer that. I'll go through. <laughs> okay, all right. If that's the way you feel, you try it. You try it. If you don't mind keeping company with snakes, you try it. But I don't like snakes. They scare me. Live and dead, I don't like them. I don't want to send unto death. I don't want God to kill me prematurely. Yeah, I want to go to heaven, but I'm not ready to die just yet. Especially not under the avenging frown of an angry father. Now, if he wants to take me as a mercy from the evil to come, that's fine. I'd rather depart and be with Christ. But when I leave out of this world and God takes me to my eternal home, I hope it's on peaceful terms. In other words, when I'm discharged from the warfare, my friends, I want an honorable discharge. I don't want to die in this world dishonorably discharged from the service. Do you? I want to be able to say I fought a good fight and I kept the faith. Don't you? All right, now look at Psalm 89. He is talking in this psalm prophetically to our Lord Jesus Christ. This is evident from verse 26. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. That is Jesus Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, the firstborn of every creature, the firstborn from the dead. We read about in the New Testament. That's Jesus Christ. And he's been made higher than the kings of the earth. He's prince of the kings of the earth, king of kings, lord of lords, the blessed and only potentate. So it is unquestionable that Jesus Christ is the one he's talking to and about. He said, My mercy will I keep for him, that is, for Jesus Christ forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him, that is, with Jesus Christ. His seed, that's the seed of Jesus Christ. Jesus has a seed, Jesus has children, and it's you and me. Now, you and I. I read in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, He shall see His seed. He shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. We are the seed of Jesus Christ. And God says about that seed of Jesus Christ, speaking of His people, His children, He said, I'll make them to endure forever. There's eternal preservation. <clears throat> and His throne is the date of heaven. God's children are just as secure as His throne. Wow, you can't... How much more secure could you want to be? As secure as the throne of Almighty God and His Son, Jesus Christ. But now watch. If His children, that is the children of Christ, forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod. And we noted from Hebrews, when God does that, He's dealing with you as with sons. 
He said, I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless. Oh, thank God for this next verse. There's, yes, it'll make a difference. You will be visited with a rod and you will feel it and you'll smart for it. But there's one thing that stands nevertheless. One thing not altered, not lessened, not undone in impact and effect. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. If God pledged to Jesus Christ an everlasting seed, God says it makes no difference whether His children sin and break the laws or not. In that respect, I'm not going to alter my faithfulness. I will preserve the seed I gave to Him. My faithfulness will not fail. Which is why I further affirm that you and I are eternally preserved, not upon the basis of our faithfulness, but upon the faithfulness of God. The unfailing faithfulness of God. If Jesus, if God pitches one soul into hell that He gave to Christ to save, then God will have broken His pledge to Christ. His faithfulness shall fail and we're all ruined. Look at Psalm 106, speaking again about those, our fathers in the wilderness, the children of Israel that backslid and smarted for it. Psalm 106 is the story of their backslidings and also the story of God's chastenings upon them for it. Oh, oh, there is a precious verse here. You know, it is amazing that once the Lord takes the blinders off your eyes and you see sovereign grace in the Bible, then you're amazed at how much it's in there and how in the world did you ever miss it. You know, when you don't believe it, you just read right over it. You don't even see it. You'll read the statements that are screaming it and you just read right over and they don't even register. But oh, when those blinders come off, you find the book's full of it. It's the story of the book. But notice one thing about God's unfaithful and uh, backsliding children in the wilderness. We read in verse 7, they remembered not the multitude of God's mercies. We read in verse 13, they soon forget His works. And then we read in verse 21, they forget God. Oh, they were a forgetful people. Oh, unfortunately, how like that we too often are. We let ourselves become so crowded with the cares and concerns and pleasures and dreams of this life. We forget God, His works and His covenant. And then the story of Psalm 106 or His numerous chastenings because of that. We read in verse 43, many times did He deliver them. But they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And, oh God, I love it. He remembered for them his covenant. They forgot, but God never did. They may forget, but God will never forget. If you don't remember, God remembers for you. Praise God. You know what salvation is? Salvation, the story can be summed up in this. It is God doing for me what I fail to do for myself. It is Christ living for me. It is Christ dying for me. It is Christ rising for me. It is Christ entering heaven for me. It is Christ interceding and praying for me. It is Christ remembering for me. It is Christ coming back for me. As the Lord's Supper says, this is my body for you, my blood for you. Oh, if you could just grasp that, that it's God doing it for you. 
He remembered for them. And then to further show that this idea of preservation is licentious, I say to you in the authority of God's Word that if you take this doctrine, if you sit there today and you say, well, inasmuch as preservation is true and if I'm saved, I can't be lost and I can't go to hell and so I'm going to, because of that, I'm going to go out here and I'm going to live like the devil. I'm going to forget church and Christ and the Bible. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I don't want to be bothered with all these restraints and I don't want that... I don't want that old man up there, and he's getting older by the year, up there screaming at me every Sunday and telling me what he doesn't like about what I'm... I don't want to put up with that. I'm going to go out there and... And it's not going to make any difference. I'm saved. I'm saved. And that's all that matters. If you take this doctrine of grace and you use it, you use it purposely, intentionally, willfully use it as an excuse to live in ungodliness, I want you to listen to this verse. It's found in the book of Jude again, chapter 1, verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares. If you use God's election to justify disobedience, I'm about to read of you. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is an occasion to lust and denying the only God in our Lord Jesus Christ. People who use grace as an excuse to live like the devil are ungodly men ordained to condemnation. And then Romans chapter 3. You see, this is not the first time the doctrine of grace has been impugned as being licentious. They said the same thing of Paul who taught this. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 8, he said, And not rather as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. See, if God's going to save us anyway, and God's going to forgive us anyway, let's just go sin. That way we can give Him more to forgive us for. (laughs) Let's just go on ahead and sin, and then that'll give Him more room for grace and more room for mercy. Let us do evil that good may come. And Paul said people that reason like that, whose damnation is just. If you use the excuse and the license to sin, I tell you on the authority of the Word of God that 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 clearly shows you never have been saved by the grace of God. You're an ungodly person. You're ordained to condemnation. And when God damns you, it'll be a just thing. Grace is no license to sin. So that deals with the objection that this doctrine is licentious. Oh, but then there are verses that will be appealed to by those who oppose this doctrine and they think somehow this teaches that, you're, that, 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 you'll, that you'll be saved only as long as you hold out faithful. And then it's, it's all hinged on, on your performance and your faithfulness. And if you ever muff it, then that's it. Then, then, then God's done with you as far as your eternal salvation. And there are certain scriptures to which these people will appeal. There's a couple of things I'd like to say about that before I get some of the main scriptures that are used by the opponents of this position. Just because, a man doesn't use, just because a man uses Scripture doesn't mean he's teaching the truth. Have you ever had people, when you've gotten in a doctrinal argument, say to you that, well, we use Scripture too. We've got verses too. Our pastor uses Scripture. Our church has got Scripture. Ever heard that? My people, the devil uses Scripture. Does that make the devil right? The devil came to Jesus in Matthew, uh, in the Gospels, in the temptation. You remember he kept trying to tempt Christ, and, and, and Jesus kept answering him with the Word of God. It's written, it's written. So, Je- so the devil tried to outsmart him. thought, well, I'll beat him in his own game. 
he wants to play this Bible game with me. I'll see if I can beat him. I'll use some scripture to get him to do what I want him to do. And he told him, he said, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple because it's written, the angel shall bear thee up lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. Of course, he didn't pay attention to the circumstances, the context, or anything like that. And uh, Jesus Christ quoted him and said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So the devil uses Scripture. False prophets and heretics use Scripture. Look at Romans chapter 16, 17 and 18. Paul said, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words, and what better words are there than the words of God? By good words, they quote verses too. By good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. I have said it before, I say it again. The question is not, does a man use Scripture? Most anybody that professes any kind of Christianity uses Scripture. The Catholics use Scripture. The Jehovah's Witnesses use Scripture. The Mormons use Scripture. They all use Scripture. The New Agers use Scripture. The question is not, does he use Scripture? The question is, how does he use Scripture? And then, we come over to Titus chapter 3, 10 and 11. A man that is an heretic after the first and admin, second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself. When a man misuses Scripture to teach an error, what he'll generally end up doing is proving more than even he wants to believe and end up cutting his own throat and condemning himself, as I shall show God willing. Now, with that little bit of an intro... Deduction. Let's go to the verses that they'll go to. Colossians chapter 1 is a favorite. To try to teach that you've got to hold out faithful to the end or you'll lose your salvation, that it is really dependent upon your faithfulness rather than God. That, you know, God will keep His end of the bargain, but you've got to keep yours. And if you fail, then God will back out of the deal. I mean, really. That's the way people teach it. You know, like a salvation is a contract. You know, you do your part and God does His part and you keep your end of the bargain and He'll keep the, His end of the bargain. I mean, it's a deal. Now, I'll grant you salvation is a contract and I'll grant you salvation is a deal. But it's a contract and a deal between God and His Son on behalf of us, for us. And they both keep the end of the bargain. And neither one has ever been known to fail. Praise God. <laughs> Now, Colossians chapter 1, 21. The problem with this is the grammar. People don't pay attention to the grammar. They make it say something it doesn't say. They read it. They, by the time it hits their brain, it gets twisted. Colossians 1, 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Hath he reconciled is... In grammar, the present perfect tense, which is past completed action. It's not yet got happen. It's not in process of happening. It's done happened, to put it in plain street English. It's done happened. Half reconciled. Where did he do it? 
in the body of the flesh of Jesus Christ, of His flesh. How did He do it? Through death. Whose death? Jesus. He didn't reconcile you in your body through your faith. He reconciled you in the body of Jesus Christ through His death. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. And here they come. Oh, here it is. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard. That if you want God to reconcile you, you're going to have to hold out, grounded and settled and unmoved, faithful till the end. I want you to notice what that didn't say. It didn't say you will he reconcile if you continue. It said, you have to be reconciled if you continue. And notice the verb tense continue is present. Half reconciled is present, perfect. That's perfected action. Continue is present, ongoing action. Nor did it say, you have to be reconciled if you will continue. It said, you have to be reconciled if you are continuing. You see, rather than the verse being conditional, as many people take it, it is descriptive. It is not setting forth the condition that you've got to fulfill in order for God to reconcile you. It's describing people who have already been reconciled. You show me a man continuing in the faith, and I'll show you a man that God's already reconciled. And that's why he's continuing. You see, the half-reconciled is the past action, the continuing is the present action. The reconciliation comes before the continuing. The reconciliation does not come after the continuing, it comes before the continuing. He doesn't reconcile you because you continue, you continue because He reconciled you. Get it right. It is descriptive, not conditional. That's Scripture objection number one. Scripture objection number two is Judas Iscariot. And it is believed that Judas was saved and then he was lost. And he's an example of a child of God losing his salvation. Well, number one, I read in my Bible where Jesus said he knew from the beginning who'd betray him. That did not take the Lord by surprise. I've heard people say that, well, this thing about election, God saving whom he wants to, it's based on God foreknowing what you're going to do. Well, if it's, that case, if it's that way, if God's election is based on His foreknowledge of what you're going to do, Judas was never elected and Judas was never saved because the Lord knew from the beginning what He'd do. But Judas Iscariot is taken as an example. We come to John chapter 17. This is the man that betrayed Christ. And we come to verse 12. Jesus said, while I was with them in the world, I talk, praying about His apostles, He said, I kept them in Thy name. Those Thou gavest Me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Do you know why the son of perdition was lost? Because the son of perdition was never given to Jesus to save. Had he been given to Jesus to save, the plain statement of John 6, 38-39 is he never would have been lost because he said, Of all which thou hast given me, it is thy will that I should lose nothing. Nothing! If he loses anything, he didn't do the will of God. So Judas Iscariot is lost because he was never given to Christ to save and Jesus knew that from the beginning. 
He never was fooled by that. When He chose him, He knew He was the devil. And He says the reason He did it was that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Well, somebody might say that, well, He did fall. Yes, He did. And I'll show you what He fell from. <laughs> Not from eternal life. Turn to Acts chapter 125. Acts 125. Speaking of Judas Iscariot, they're having a little conference and a prayer meeting to find out who's going to replace Judas as far as the apostolic office. And we read in verse 24, they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which, notice how specific that is, Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. Yes, Judas fell, not from eternal life, but from the apostleship. It says that's what he fell from, his office, not his eternal salvation. So Judas is not an example of somebody that was eternally saved and then unsaved, for he was never saved from the start. Well then, what about Galatians? This is where, if it proves the position, it proves too much. This is where advocates of this position are about to condemn themselves by dare going to this text. Because you see, here's the way the position goes. Is that... When you do whatever they say you've got to do to get saved, and it varies depending on the denomination, if it's uh, uh, maybe a Methodist, you accept Christ, and then you've got to hold out faith and live a good life. And as long as you do that, then you'll be saved. Or a Catholic, if you get baptized, as long as you're faithful to Mother Church and receive the Holy Sacraments, and yeah, yeah, then you'll, you'll stand a fair chance of making it via purgatory. Or if it's the Church of Christ, when you are so-called. You know, I always feel like I, I'm handing them more than they deserve when I call them that. That's what they call themselves. They who call themselves the Church of Christ with a little c. <laughs> you know what you ought to call them? Church of Antichrist. That'd be better. So those who are in the Church of Antichrist, they will teach, you know, you've got to get baptized into their church. And when once you've done that, as long as you hold out faithful then you make it. Fulfill all the conditions and do all the necessary works prescribed in the New Testament, you'll make it. I want you to notice what these people are teaching. That in order to be fully, finally justified, you must keep the law. For what is a law? A law is a rule of conduct imposed by authority. It makes no difference whether you're talking about the Old Testament law or the New Testament law. It cuts the same. It is a rule of conduct imposed by authority. So they are teaching that you must obey the rules of conduct in order to keep yourself saved. God saves you, but to stay saved, you have got to keep the rules. You have got to obey the law in order for God's justification process to stick, basically. And that if you don't keep the law, if you don't obey the rules, then you will lose God's saving grace. Then they'll dare go to this verse to try to prove their position, and in so doing, by their own doctrine, they have condemned themselves. For Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4 said, Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. And they'll say, see there, you can fall from grace. Yes, and see who it is that is falling from grace. It's those who believe that they have to secure their salvation by rules of conduct. 
So those who appeal to this text to prove you can lose your salvation are saying they've lost it. Poor things. Because they are relying on rules of conduct imposed by authority to keep themselves saved. And those are the very people Paul said are fallen from grace. You see, a heretic's condemned it himself. Well, what then is it saying? Well, the Galatians had gotten tripped up in this. The Galatians had been deceived. They had been bewitched by false teachers into thinking that they had to do something to complete the salvation process. Paul's writing to them, telling them they've fallen from grace. And yet I think it's strange that these very same people that Paul wrote to telling them they've fallen from grace, he calls them brethren and says in Galatians 4.28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. He didn't say we were. He didn't say you were. He said you are. Strange, isn't it? And these very, these very people that he's saying are fallen from grace, he opens up in his epistle and he says, Grace be to you. Wait a minute, Paul. Well, what is he talking about when he says fallen from grace? I'll give you a hint. What am I preaching this morning? I'm preaching grace. What do you believe this morning if you believe what I'm preaching? You believe grace. Well, what if you stop believing it? Then you're falling from grace. He's talking about not falling from God's actual work of saving grace, but falling from the doctrine of it. And if you'll compare it with chapter 1, that's exactly what Paul said had happened to them. You know, I've been preaching this for years, and I'm just as excited as I can be. It doesn't get old. I love this story. It's as, fresh, it's as good today as it was when I started preaching it when I was a kid of 18 years old. In fact, it's better. Oh, in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, this will explain how it was they had fallen from grace. He said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. You see, when they had removed themselves from the gospel of grace to the gospel of works, they had fallen from grace in that respect. Well then, how about this? I used to be a Methodist, for which God in His great mercy through the death of His beloved Son upon the cross has forgiven me. In Revelation, and I mean that, in Revelation, especially having been a united Methodist, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, the Methodists believe you can lose your salvation, eternally speaking. And uh, I can still remember the, the fellow member of the choir taking me to this verse to substantiate this belief that you could lose it. In Revelation 3, 5, the statement is made, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and God says, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. And the argument is made, see there, it says it. It says your name can be blotted out of the book of life. It's right there in the black and white print. Wait a minute, somebody's got a problem. Somebody can't read. That verse doesn't say that God will do it, it says he won't. Now imagine taking a verse that says he won't do something and using that as proof that he will. Honey, I mean, imagine a man saying to his wife, I will be faithful to you. I will not desert you. And she says, well, that means you will. 
I mean, somebody saying they're not going to do something, taken as proof they will, that is preposterous. I mean, God says He will not lie. Does that mean He might? I mean, really? Think about that. A verse that's where He says, I'm not going to do something as proof He will. That, you, talk, you talk about something's, twisted, something's wrong somewhere when people start reasoning like that. I mean, that's just like, just take the whole Bible and put it in reverse. And everything He says He won't do, let that be proof He will. And everything He says He will do, let that be proof He won't. That's reading the Bible in reverse. You talk about perverse teaching, there it is. Well, how about this one? In Exodus 32. Exodus 32. As a proof that you can be blotted out of the book of life. You know, you've got a book called the book of life. We just read about it in Revelation 3. And I'm going to tell you something. If your name's not in there, you're not going to heaven. The Bible says everybody whose name is not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. The only people that enter into the, the pearly white city that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22 are those whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Notice if your name's in that book, it's been there from the foundation of the world. It, it isn't a matter that God wrote it in there when you did something. That thing's been there ever since the worlds were cast. Uh, if it's in there at all, with the promise of God, it will not be blotted out. But now here, this is taken as proof that God will take your name out of the book of life if you don't behave yourself. It's, it's Exodus thirty-two, thirty-one, And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, This is when the children of Israel, our fathers in the wilderness, had, had made the golden calf and danced around it and feasted. And Moses returned, Exodus thirty-two, thirty-one, unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Now, here's a statement from God that He will blot out of the book. And somebody will say, See! There's the proof. He said He will blot them out of the book of life. No, He didn't. You just slipped two words in there that aren't there. He said, I'll blot them out of my book. But He did not say, of life. You say, well, what book is it then? Well, let's explain Scripture with Scripture like we're told. Compare spiritual things with spiritual. Come over to the book of Deuteronomy 9, 14. Deuteronomy 9 and 14. This is the same context when the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord and had worshipped that golden calf. You read the chapter. He's talking about the same incident that we read about in Exodus 32. And God said in verse 14, Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. Now, if your name's in the Lamb's book of life, it's written in heaven. Now, notice this one is I'm going to blot out their name not from heaven, but from under heaven. Now, folks, 
Heaven and under heaven are two different places. They're not the same place. You and I today are under heaven, not in heaven. What the Lord is saying is, I'll kill them. This is talking about the destruction of their physical lives on this earth under heaven for their sin. You see, God's got a book that has written in it the names of everybody that live in heaven, and God's got a book with the names of everybody walking on the face of this earth. And if you don't straighten up your conduct and fly right, God will blot you out of your book under heaven. Now, in that context, you may sing, Is my name written there? And, la- and then this one. Oh, this is a favorite. And I'm not going to elaborate on this one extensively. Because it's very obvious that if this proves the position that you can lose your eternal salvation, it proves more than even they want it to prove. Hebrews chapter 6. You know, it's real funny how inconsistent sometimes people can be. You know, Jimmy Swaggart, Assembly of God, they believe you can lose your salvation. But isn't it funny when he uh, did what he did with that woman? That you never did hear anybody saying that I recall. You never did hear Jimmy saying, Oh, Lord, save me again. You never did hear him saying, oh, I'm going to hell, or anything like that. But anyway, when you come over here to, but according to their doctrine, that, that, that's exactly what, what happened. And in Hebrews chapter 6, this is taken as proof that you can lose your salvation. For we read in Hebrews 6, 4, oh, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come. Now, I do not dispute for a single moment that that is descriptive of a person who's been a child of God. Now, he says it's impossible for folks like that, if they shall fall away, to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucified themselves, the Son of God, afresh, and put Him to an open shame. Now, anybody that would dare go to that text to prove that you can lose your eternal salvation has got himself in a pickle if he ever flubs one time. Because the passage says that if he falls away, it's impossible to renew him again to repentance. So if this verse is appealed to as proof that you can lose your eternal salvation, it also proves you get one crack at being saved, and if you ever blow it, you'll never get it back. Once and once only do you get a chance, and after that, you're lost, world without end, and it'll do you no good to even try to repent. In fact, it's impossible. Now, they don't want to believe that, but that's what they believe. See, the heretic is condemned to himself. But I want you to notice what our verse says will happen if people thus fall away. It says, if they shall fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, how do you get renewed again unto repentance? The Apostle Paul describes the new birth as an experience of renewal. He said in Titus 3 and verses 4 and 5, But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. When you were regenerated and reborn again, or or born again, you were renewed. You were given a new heart and a new spirit. Now notice, if you could ever lose that, it would be impossible for that to happen again. It's impossible to renew them again unto repentance. And another thing I think is so sweet about this verse is notice the word order, renewed unto repentance. 
See, most people teach you got to repent to be born again. They teach you repent to renewal. And this verse states exactly the opposite. It's not repent to renewal, it's renewed to repentance. You're born again first and then you repent. But this is saying if that is ever undone, it would be impossible to redo it. And it'll tell you why. Seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh. Afresh means with a fresh commencement all over again. If somebody Jesus died for loses his eternal salvation, Jesus Christ will go back to Calvary. Jesus Christ will be nailed to the cross afresh. If he was crucified physically and literally the first time, a fresh crucifixion by definition would be a repeat of that performance. And the teaching of Paul throughout the entire epistle of Hebrews is that will never happen. He was once offered, once offered, the just for the unjust, by one offering. He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. You read it over and over again. I can give you a string of verses right now. Hebrews. 7.27, Hebrews 9.12, Hebrews 9.24 through 28, Hebrews 10.1 through 18, all emphasizing that Christ died once only. You know what that means? There'll be no fresh crucifixion. And in as much as there will never be a fresh crucifixion, there will never be such a loss of salvation as would necessitate it. And then I want to take you to one last verse, if I may have your attention for just a few more minutes. Revelation 22. And you will have with this covered the main arguments that are made against the doctrine so plainly stated concerning eternal preservation. Revelation 22. 18 and 19, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, anybody that gets caught cutting stuff out of the Bible, ooh, this does condemn the modern translators and revisers slicing verses out. Men getting up in pulpits and saying, this doesn't belong here, this is inserted, blah, blah. Any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy. God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And the argument is made, see there, preacher? It says it right there in the positive, in the affirmative, that if you do this, God will take your name out of the book of life. There it is. Again, somebody's got a problem with reading. Did it say name, people? You find the word name in there? It didn't say name. It said part. Part is spelled P-A-R-T. It is not spelled N-A-M-E. 
You see, in order to understand the Bible, before you ever worry, and I've said it before and I say it again, before you ever worry about what the Bible means, you've got to, first of all, pay attention to what the Bible says. And it doesn't say name, it says part. Now, there's just a little something you need to understand. Understand what John is saying there, or the angel is saying to John. He says he'll take away your part out of the book of life and out of the holy city. That's in heaven above. Now, the Bible teaches that every blessing you've got in heaven is based upon God's election. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 says, According as He hath chosen us in Him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world... Now, pardon me. Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, uh, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Notice, all spiritual blessings are based upon God's election. Election is your title to every one of them. However, some of those blessings are presently enjoyed unconditionally, and some of them are enjoyed conditionally. For example, the blessing of justification from our sins is not conditioned upon our performance because Romans 3.24 says we're justified freely by His grace. And if it's free, you didn't have to do anything to get it. The blessing of eternal life, we are told, is the gift of God. It's not a wage you earned like death. It is a gift, a free gift, with no strings attached upon your performance. It is an unconditional blessing to which God's election has entitled you. However, there are other blessings that as the children of God, we can only enjoy providing we fulfill certain conditions. For example, the blessing of wisdom. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God and let him ask in faith. Now, here is a heavenly blessing that you will only get if you fulfill the condition of prayer and faith. Or the heavenly blessing of peace which passeth understanding to keep the heart and mind will only be granted if you fulfill the condition to let your requests be made known unto God with thanksgiving. However, even those conditional blessings are available to you because you have first been saved by the unconditional grace of God based upon election. Unconditional and conditional blessings are all available because our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life by the electing decree of God. Now, the unconditional blessings cannot be lost because you fail to do something or do something. By definition, they can't be lost if they're unconditional. So that leaves us with this logical conclusion. What can be lost are the conditional blessings if you start tampering with God's book. Your fellowship in this church is hinged. You wouldn't have it if your name wasn't in the Lamb's Book of Life. But you can lose this. This is a part of the holy city you get right now, folks, that you'll lose if you tamper with the Word of God. Well... That's our sermon. I'll close with these words written after that. It's a good closing spot. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Thank you for your good attention and order.
stand as we sing, and I want you to notice the tulip in this hymn. We've got in verse 3, election. We've got involvement of sin and ruin. There's total depravity in verse 2. No helper. That's total depravity. Verse 3, free election, known by calling. There's effectual grace. Saints are kept from final falling. There's the preservation. Christ alone could us redeem. He saved His favorite nation. There's particular redemption, limited atonement. All of the doctrine laid